Welcome to our podcast. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. We have uh, an absolute ton of uh, ground that we want to uh, cover here today, and so we will uh, dive in uh, as soon as I find my clicker. And so I I was carrying this around this morning while I'm looking for my clicker, and uh, somebody asked if it was because of the political tension going on. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what to say, because um, it's not a bad idea. Um, all right, so let us jump in. If you could open in a Bible, just kind of keep it open to 14, 15, 16. We're going to be jumping in and out of that text. In fact, we have a whole lot of Bible to cover here today. One of my uh, all-time favorite uh, comic strips is The Far Side, and it was a day of mourning when they were no longer producing, when Gary Larson was no longer producing them, Uh, but uh, one of the top comics of all was God at His Computer. God at His Computer. Does anybody know this one? Do you remember this one? It's the one where God's got a smite button on His keyboard. And, and so you look at that, you're like, oh, that's so funny. You've got this, you've got, you know, God at his computer. He's about to kind of execute this command. And the piano is going to drop on this poor unsuspecting guy's head. And, of course, it's funny because we look at it and we go, ah, I wouldn't ever, ever be like that. Um, and then there's a little part of us that thinks, well, would it, would it? Like, does God really have a smite button? Because who wants a God who judges? When you first think about it, you go, of course, nobody wants, nobody wants there to be a God who judges, who has, a, who has his finger hovering above the smite button. That would be terrible. We're pretty sure that's not the way it's supposed to be. But then give it just a little bit more thought and get past the emotional distress of the idea, and suddenly we start to realize that we really do want a smite button in the universe. We really do. Because do we really want to live in a world where there are no consequences for doing terrible things? Of course not. Of course not. Are we really comfortable with a reality that would allow powerful people to take advantage of less powerful people? We think it's wrong. Are we really okay in a world that traffics children? Of course not. We want a smite button in those situations. Are we willing to shrug and to turn away from poverty, especially when it's caused by by greed and corruption? Are we okay when governments oppress the church and hinder the gospel? With just a few moments of thought, we start to think, you know, actually, it isn't too bad an idea to have a kind of universal smite button available. 
And certainly, as long as God is doing it, we can rest assured that it's being done well because people will always marginalize other people. People will fail to do the good that they ought to do. And so we need judgment. In fact, we want judgment when it rightly falls on those who deserve it. We just don't really want it to apply to us. So today we continue in this series we're doing in the book of Revelations. We've been doing this series now and weaving in some politics just to sort of keep it spicy because, um, you know, there wasn't enough in the Revelation to, to keep us going on that. So, and we still have quite a few chapters to cover. Uh, so I hope you've been finding the series challenging as well as encouraging. And so what we're going to be doing is switching gears in the next couple of weeks Uh, But not to move away from Revelations, but to change the focus of it. In fact, we're going to study the Revelation all the way through the end of the year, but we're going to be switching focus away from some of the political things we've been doing and toward more of an Advent focus. We're not there yet, though. So last week, we saw the dragon attacking the followers of Jesus. And this was a frightening and a disturbing scene. But in some ways, what happens today is... Worse, because today we see Jesus attacking the followers of the dragon. We're in Revelation 14 in verse 6. He says, I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, who made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Then a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. If you keep going in the reading in the next section, that's where you get the picture of the angels and, and the, the sickle. And you've got these sickles and this, this, this harvest that's filled with blood. Graphic and disturbing, disheartening. And all of it will tell us one thing, that there is no refuge from the divine judge. None. There is no refuge. When God sets about the task of judgment, none will escape. It will be global. It will be complete. I mean, think about it. Even the mention of the gospel here, which we, in, we get so accustomed to in verse 6, he speaks of the eternal gospel. And normally you get to the gospel and you're like, such good news. This version of the eternal gospel has an angel delivering a message to every tribe and tongue and nation. That's great. That sounds like what we're supposed to be doing. That's the, that's the great commission where we're supposed to go to every t- tribe, tongue, and nation. But then it starts to talk about judgment and, and a fear of God. And then it speaks of adulteries and false worship and, and God's fury. This isn't the eternal gospel that we're so used to talking about when we're studying the rest of the New Testament. 
It gets worse in verse 11. He speaks of an eternal judgment. An eternal judgment. Not an annihilation. Not that that these lives will simply be snuffed out. That is almost tolerable. Though horrifying, it is almost tolerable. But what's spoken of here is an eternal suffering of a soul. I mean, this does not sound like the Jesus who carries sheep on his shoulders. By the way, I've been getting quite a few questions about what my plan is for this mop, this COVID mop that's been happening. Some of you have been really wondering, like, what the plan was. And so I just, you know, like, did I just lose control? Did my, you know, did something happen with my, my barber? This is what's happening. That's what I'm going for. And so, like, I'm not stopping until I get there. So you'll see that picture right here, and you'll be like, now he looks like Jesus. You know, this is the picture we love. You know, send the children to Jesus. Right? Like, this is what we want. That's the Jesus. Even the, even the gentle-spirited Jesus here, though, admittedly creepy because the eyes follow you. It's definitely got this sort of like, it just doesn't sound like what we are now reading. And yet it was Jesus who tells us in Luke 12. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's the same Jesus. going to talk about wrath for just a minute here. I mean, I don't want to actually talk about wrath, but I sort of feel like we just have to at least get it out on the table because these, par- these, par- these passages, these chapters are just filled with wrath. I, I remember uh, some time back, I was, uh, we were out and about, and, and I happened to see someone bullying one of my sons. And I, I could, you know, they were insulting and they were you like just marginalized and they were like just mocking them and like you could see the other, they were, others were kind of looking at it as well and I, I felt this like anger, this rage even start to like well up inside me and if you've ever been in that experience where you see someone actually hurting one of your children, you feel this sort of visceral thing that starts to well up and I was angry and I was ready to act and then like Wisdom got the better of me. I knew I couldn't spank another kid's child on the playground. And so, like, I just, like, I grabbed my son and I just gave the kid a dirty look. And then, like, when, when I might have said, I might have said, anyway. But, like, the, I just had to, like, move on. But, like, you feel it. You're like, how dare you? And then you're like, I can't believe what can well up inside of you when you're talking about an offender who is this big. What is wrong? But there's a, there is this, there is this sense of wrath. Another time, one of my kids, they got into a scrape in school. So we had to go talk to the principal. I found out when we got there that my son had been defending another person. And that's what led to this physical altercation. But you know, the schools have zero you know, tolerance policies and you're not allowed to put your hands on another, another person. And so, and, and so the principal, we were talking it through and I said, you know, I, I totally understand. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, just so you know, he's not in trouble at home. 
because, you know, like he was defending someone. And so, like, this is actually what we were hoping our sons would become, like people who would stand up and defend those who cannot defend themselves. And so there was a sense in which I was almost condoning violence. And you think, wow, that's so bizarre. But then again, that's how we are structured even as a society. I mean, the police are given authority to use violence to stop violence. So is the military. We need to honor and respect that authority, to be grateful to the men and the women who are in these increasingly challenging professions, without a doubt. Now, of course, like everyone, I'm, or like most people, I'm opposed to unnecessary violence, but I'm actually in favor of necessary violence, and so are you. It doesn't take us too long to get there. And that's why when you get into these scriptures and you start to hear some of these passages, he says here in Revelation 16, verse 5, just flip over there a second, he says, Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You're just in these judgments, O Holy One. You who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and, they have, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's what the heavenly choir sings, that his judgments are true and that they're just and that they're needed. And after judgment upon judgment, the people still will not repent. Now, we have bowls, that's, what we, that's our chapters. We also had the trumpets and the seals, and all of these sort of relate together. We'll probably talk about these in a few weeks of kind of the relationship, but they, they really repeat the same storyline with intensity. Sort of, you know, the, the scriptures often repeat things three times as sort of a way to make certain we know it's really true, that God has really declared it. Holy, 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 it's that kind of a thing. And so they repeat these cycles of judgment three different times, and the bowls are the last of them. But in these, we also pick up a little bit of the plague of Egypt. And so we get the Old Testament background as to what's happening here, which of course is, is in, for us, it's, a, it's an important observation to make because in the, in the Exodus story in the Old Testament, when we were dealing with Egypt and the Pharaoh, Pharaoh refused to repent and increasing judgments came upon Pharaoh and his people. Even though they knew that they were being broken as a people. They still refused to repent. And we see that. Look at verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire like a solar flare. And they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So they are being scorched by the sun they refused to repent. The fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. It sounds just like the plagues. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. If you oppose God and his ways, then divine judgment is certain and it is shocking but there is absolutely no refuge from his smite button. But there is refuge 
And so this lays a little bit of a dilemma on us because once we start to actually get into this story a little more, we read these chapters, suddenly we find out that there is refuge from the divine judge. Look at verse 1. I looked and there before me was the lamb standing. This is verse four, chapter 14, verse 1, sorry. There before me, the lamb standing on Mount Zion. We already know what the lamb language is about. That's the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. We're right back at Exodus. We're right back at, at the... Uh, at the battle against Pharaoh and Egypt. He talks about Mount Zion. That was their goal. That's where they were heading to the promised land. But Zion ended up becoming the promise of God's kingdom here on earth. And so there is something incredible and powerful and redemptive that's starting to happen here. He mentions the 144,000. And what we talked about there was that that's, you know, that's the perfect number. That's all of the saints. It's the 12 Old Testament patriarchs. It's the 12, I mean, the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. It is the 12 apostles. It is the symbol of all of the church. It's 12 times 12, 144 times 1,000 to show that it is the great multitude of God's people. So you come across this number, and that's what the 144,000 is. It's all of us. It's those who follow Jesus. They had their name on his father's name written on their foreheads. This is the whole Mark thing again that we talked about last week. This is the real Mark that God puts. And then, of course, they heard the sound from heaven like the roaring of rushing waters, a loud, uh, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. I love this picture because here, I think this is a hint. Even the harp itself, I think, is a hint of what's going on because it, it's used heavy. The, a harp as an instrument is used heavy in the prophets and it's used heavy in the Psalms, but it isn't really referenced that much. And then we get to the Revelation and it starts showing up again. And when it shows up, we see some very cool patterns. The, re, in, it, the harp is played to celebrate our victory over sin in Revelation 5. So we, we are victorious, and, and the harp leads us in worship. Then in verse uh, chapter 13, when we have victory over the beast, the harp plays, and the people of God worship. I think this points to the triumph that we experience over sin and over the enemy. And when that triumph happens, it explodes into worship when they bust out the heavenly harps. Now, we got to talk a little bit about the virgins, right, from verse 4, because, you know, it's just, it's kind of an odd one here. It's just hanging out there, and you got to figure it out. So those who find that there is refuge in the divine judge are said to be virgins. So if you, if you want to take that literally, then I know what you're thinking. This is a problem for me. So we're going to not take it literally, uh, because I think, of course, this is a symbol. Why? Because the picture of spiritual fidelity to Christ as his bride shows up time and again in the scriptures. We have it in Revelation 19. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So he's, he's taking that kind of language and he's saying, listen, this has to apply to the followers of Jesus. We have to have spiritual fidelity. In fact, it's, it goes again here. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid 
that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In both of these passages, he talks about us being the bride and he speaks of judgment. He talks about us being the virgin bride and having fidelity to our Savior and he speaks of the serpent. These are the exact same images that we've been dealing with in the Revelation. And so our spiritual virginity points to our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so followers of Jesus, we have to remain faithful to him alone. So there is refuge, but it isn't refuge from the judge. And I think that's one of the key ideas that we often forget about. There is only refuge in the divine judge. From makes it sound like we are running away from judgment, but we actually run toward Christ and toward the judge. You run away from him, you end up hiding in the mountains, in the caves, and you experience the judgment. But instead, we have to run into the divine judge. And you actually see that in our text as well. I can't develop it too much here, but there's all sorts of references here. Angels are coming and going. Heaven is opened. We get a peek into heaven. There's a temple. Then there's a tabernacle of the testimony. There's all of this kind of uh, interesting symbolic reference. But I think that what this points us to is that we have to run into, for instance, the, the ark, right? So we're, we're given this picture of the tabernacle and the testimony. So what was the ark besides what Indiana Jones was looking for. So uh, the ark has a, this is a photograph, by the way, I found it. Um, and so th the ark itself has the, the actual Ten Commandments in it. That's, that was what God had created. He put the ark, uh, he put inside the ark the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the law. The law is the basis of your judgment. Your inability to follow the law, follow the Ten Commandments, is why you will be judged. It's why I will be judged. That's just, that's the brutality of the law. But the, the ark is also where the Shekinah glory of God rested. So the presence of God sat above the ark. So wait, the judgment is there, but the presence of God is there as well. So what happened at the crucifixion of Jesus? The world went dark. And the veil that separated the ark from the people was torn in two. From top to bottom, it was ripped asunder by God himself. Because now we have access to the very presence of God. Why? Because the blood of Jesus covers the mercy seat, the top of the ark. It covers it. And now we get to approach. So despite the judgment that comes from our disobedience to the law, we now still get to press into the inner court, the inner chamber of the temple, and, and we get to rest in the presence of God. See, this is an invitation to go in, not run from. We have to consider, right? You heard this whole big uh, passages, really two whole stories about the sickle. And at first, it looks like there's just judgment coming because the sickle comes on the scene and all of a sudden an angel sickles the whole earth. Just one huge swipe and it says the earth is harvested. 
But if you're not paying attention, you just kind of roll into the next one and you realize another angel comes out with another sickle and he comes through and he does the same thing. He sickles the earth and the blood is up to a horse's neck. You think, this is brutal. The sickle is clearly a symbol of judgment. But even in this, we see the invitation to come in because it's actually two reapings. There are two angels, and the two stories are different. One of them is a reaping, and there is no blood in it. You can go back later and read it. It's in Revelation 14. It starts in verse 14, but there is no blood in it. It's the second reaping. It's the one of the grapes. The first sounds a lot more like wheat. It sounds like grain. And we have this parable. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy, the dragon, came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both, together, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. That's the first reaping. They go out into the field and they cut down weed and wheat. And the wheat ends up gathered together. This isn't a symbol simply of God's judgment. This is a symbol of us going home. It's a symbol of us now entering into the very presence of God. He's calling us in to the barn, gathered up together into his barn. Listen, when Jesus shows up, you can count on two promises that he has made being fulfilled. We have judgment and we have redemption. He becomes the divine redeemer. And this divine redemption is now being left in your hands. Chapter 16, verse 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed God, but they refused to repent of what they had done. You know, some of you here are nibbling around the edges of Christianity. You're just checking things out. Maybe you're not so sure. Maybe you've sort of been a Christian your whole life, but you've never really gotten serious. You've never really been wholly devoted. You've never really said, I'm going to give my all, and I'm going to be wholly dedicated to one Savior. You're nibbling on the edges. Where is the spiritual fidelity in that? We look around and we think, if I can keep Jesus at arm's length, I can kind of be safe, hedge my bets, but not really let it impact my life. Reading these texts, does it sound anything like the kind of Jesus we're talking about here, guys? He plays for keeps. He wants your all. There's no nibbling around the edges. So how does this relate to our current political turmoil? Well, we all know there is now no need to fear anything this world throws at you because God is in control. Though it seems like all hell is breaking out against us. We think that there is some sort of existential threat. If they win, 
we lose. The climate, we're all going to die. The whole planet is going to be destroyed. Listen, I, I sympathize with some of those things. I'm, I, what I'm saying is there's really one existential threat you need to worry about. And we just read about it. God himself is our existential threat, and not just for this life, but for the life to come because you and I have sinned and we have rebelled and we have failed to do the good that we ought to do. We hoard our resources rather than give them to those in need and we fail to do the work of evangelism like we have been commanded to do. We have dishonored the leaders that God has put in charge. We've judged our brothers and our sisters and here in all of that we have one choice and that is to run to the Redeemer for our refuge. Never from. We also get to learn something really neat about judgment. I think we get to say to ourselves, we can let God worry about judgment. Let's leave it in his hands. You don't need to judge your brothers and your sisters. You don't need to accuse and you don't need to assume that you are more righteous than they. There is this incredible passage. It's really all of Romans 14, but here are just some excerpts from it. Except the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Then he goes on to explain about these differences. He says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. And now listen to this. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Listen, we get into this whole thing, back and forth, pointing fingers, making assumptions about how much more right we are. Be careful. Be careful. Who are you to judge another person's servant? And if you say, yes, but something, it's crying out inside me, justice must be done. It will be. It'll just be perfect judgment, not yours. It won't be mixed with my own sin and bias and problems. It'll be the Savior's perfect judgment. He goes on, he says, You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. The judgment that you actually are dishing out will be used at your own judgment. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbor for their good, to build them up. Is that what our rhetoric has been like? Is that what our social media has been like? Have we been using it to continue to build up, to, to, to encourage, to point people back toward Christ, accept one another, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God? I think this promise that God himself will be the judge. It frees us from the responsibility of having to bring his judgment on earth. It frees us from being responsible 
to have to fight every single person on every single issue. What we're supposed to bring here is his mercy, his love, and his forgiveness. Listen, all of humanity is being given a choice to follow the dragon or to follow God, and every single one needs to seek refuge in the divine redeemer. Based on our national statistics, 50% of you are sad and 50% are happy. 50% of you are despairing, overwhelmed, angry, and 50% of you feel like a new day has dawned, and finally all evil has been vanquished on this planet. You know, it's tempting to think of the other side as our enemy, but they are not. God wages war against and he judges the disciples of the dragon only after repeated attempts to win them back to Jesus. And then at the end, God will give them what their rebellion deserves. But until that moment, our fight is not against them. Our fight is for them. And what we do instead is kick up all of this dust and we forget the real reason that we are here. Your political opponents are not your enemy. The dragon is your enemy, Christian. Misguided zealots on both sides, guess what they need? They need to run to Christ and be covered by his blood. There is refuge in the divine redeemer. We saw it. It said it numerous times in our passage. The wrath was coming to an end. At one point he even said, it is done, which sounds a whole lot like what happened when Jesus died on the cross and he told him, it is finished. Because now... We can be purchased. Revelation 14.4, we can be purchased from among mankind. The people here that you think are your enemies, God wants in heaven worshiping with you. So on this great day of Armageddon, blood will indeed fill the streets. And it might, it will very well be the blood of God's enemies, the disciples of the dragon. And if that is you, then that will be your blood. But it is not what God desires. He would rather it be the blood that flows from Calvary, the blood of Christ, which can cover the whole of the planet and offer up hope and forgiveness to all who will run to the divine Redeemer. What part will you play in that? Because that's God's plan. His plan is for you to bring the love of Christ to the people you know, the people you dislike, the people who disagree with you, the people you struggle with. You're his plan. May we do that and much more. Father, we just come here now and we're just asking, Lord, in this deeply divided time when so many are hopeful and others are despairing. Lord, in the end, we know that you sit on the throne. We know that you, Father, have given us this divine Redeemer. You've given us the promise of salvation. And Lord, you have given us the task and the privilege of taking this message to a world so deeply divided. 
to people who are hurting, people despairing, people who have frustration growing up in their hearts, people who have been hurt. Lord, you're asking us to bring this message, this hope to them. May we do that, Lord. May we do it. Make us the women and the men that we need to be, wholly devoted to you, sold out to you. We ask it in Christ's name, according to his blood. Amen.